0: is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and deep state radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, here in New York City. It's Thursday, so I am joined by our usual co-hosts, including also in New York City at NYU Law School, Ryan Goodman. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David and in washington dc uh dr kavita patel how are you doing today kavita
2: i i'm i'm on pause today much like yeah. the johnson and johnson vaccine
1: be, and speaking of the johnson and johnson vaccine our friend Pulitzer Prize winning writer and expert on all things pandemic lori garrett uh who's also in new york city how are you doing lori
3: uh like everybody else i'm sick and tired of not having a real life but- uh, yeah here
1: it goes. No, I, und- I understand. But I've been doing that for decades. It's it's sustainable. Uh, So here here's here's where I want to start. One of the reasons we're actually doing this podcast is I was, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of news about the pandemic, and we'll get to all of it. Um, and I've got questions, Ryan has questions, and we'll just pepper Lori and Kavita with our p- questions. But uh, I think it was yesterday, Lori, or maybe it was the day before I saw a tweet from you, and it was talking about the trend lines associated with the pandemic in the United States and i'm paraphrasing what you said but it was something like if this doesn't worry you you're not paying attention and 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 so that's where i'd like to start how do you interpret the trends in the us
3: yeah i would love to be able to come on this show and other shows and say you know what since we got these wonderful nearly miraculous vaccines and Uh, we have a new president and we're rolling it all out. Everything's going to evaporate. The problem's going away and all is well with this world. But unfortunately, the opposite is the case. Yes, we're doing many things as matters of policy in this country that are vast improvements over the status of the situation just three months ago. But this epidemic is showing all the wrong trends. On a global scale, it's growing exponentially uh, at at a pace unprecedented and in places that thought they had basically defeated the problem, such as China now seeing a resurgence, India in a completely out of control, catastrophic situation right now. Germany, which really had things under control, is not only out of control, but it may actually make the world's most popular sitting leader, Angela Merkel, go out in disgrace. Hmm. It's, it's causing a real disruption of the entire realpolitik among hmm. the Germans. Here in the United States, we had a steady trend downwards in deaths and hospitalizations. And the percentage of tests coming back positive have been going down in all but a handful of states. And the key states that we were worried about were also states where the so-called UK variant the B117 form mutant form of the virus had started to spread pretty widely leading that you know hit parade is Michigan but there were several other states experiencing similar trends now we're way beyond that point now we're at this very very delicate moment where Roughly a third of the population has received the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, um, and uh, most of the over 70-year-old population is fully vaccinated, all doses, et cetera. And the you know, picture looked extraordinary because the White House was pushing the manufacturers and the distribution entire system to record pace of both production and distribution of vaccines for the United States. Never in our history have we accomplished what's happened in the last roughly 90 days. But the variants have diversified further. We now have more than a dozen different mutant forms of the virus circulating in the United States. We have at least four in wide circulation that are homegrown, two two in California, um, one up in the San Francisco area and one in New York. The New York form appears to be especially aggressive and has really it's out competing the usually most aggressive B117 to be the dominant form in circulation in New York statewide. Uh, and it really we're we've been in this mad race where the the only strategy in anybody's mind, and I would argue it's not a strategy, it's a tactic, but at any rate, the only one in anybody's mind was, let's beat the variants by getting vaccine out as fast as possible. So it's this mad race. You got the variants in one car, the vaccines in the other, and they're roaring in the Indy 500, and we'll see who makes it to the finish line without crashing. But now what we're seeing is that that's, that's not a successful strategy that we're going to have ongoing evolution of this virus. It is successfully um, evading antibody response in all too many cases, even in people who have been vaccinated or have suffered prior incidents of COVID. And there remains this intransigent core of somewhere between 20 and 30% of Americans who don't want to get vaccinated. And each little incident that crops up, whether it's the Johnson & Johnson allegations of blood clots, cerebral blood clots in one case fatal mm-hmm. uh, among six individuals in the United States, or the AstraZeneca also blood clotting problem in Europe with about 62 cases, or the much rumored but, but denied by the Russian government Sputnik-associated uh, clotting mm-hmm. incidents as well, all of them of the same class of vaccines made the same basic vector idea, quite different from our successful Moderna and Pfizer, by the way. Um, Whether it's those situations or it's just people claiming that, you know, they came down with a lousy flu-like syndrome that just wouldn't go away after they got vaccinated, whatever it may be, each pylon contributes to validating The uh, intransigence among that, roughly 20 to 30% of Americans who say no. And shockingly, 45% of active duty Marines have refused vaccination. Mm -hmm. This tells you that there's something going on here that's ideological, Mm -hmm. that goes way past any biological concerns, any, oh, what if I'm in that risk group that gets a side effect Mm -hmm. category. This is something else altogether. And um, I and then finally, our trends are upwards in far too many states. We're beginning to see um, not at first, we were worried that we were stuck at a bad plateau level. But now in all too much of the country, we're off the plateau and back on the up, um, pushing our way towards what I would argue is going to be surge number four.
1: So I'm going to. Uh, ask a follow-up question to Kavita and then Ryan, you can pose one to Lori and Kavita as well. But my follow-up question to Kavita is what's your reaction to what Lori said? And in particular, why? Why is this happening? Yeah,
2: I I mean, Lori literally has written the book on this, so I I, I would say the only place, I, it's not even disagreement, so I agree with everything Lori's saying. And by the way, I think Lori, you point out global trends, if one, you know, I learned this, um, I had just come on the Hill, like kind of post anthrax, Lori, you talked about anthrax here before. Something I learned kind of dealing with like the post anthrax uh, era, and then kind of going into H1N1 and other things, we don't understand risk. I mean, we just do not understand risk. And I and I mean that both in a good way and a bad way. We don't understand what um, six cases in, you know, 6.8 or 7.1 million shots means, Laurie, just like we don't understand, like risk of, you know, going out into a crowded restaurant uh, with individuals who are not wearing masks and what that can translate to in kind of a scenario where you get COVID and might get hospitalized and then might die. And we just don't do risk, period. And add to that, that kind of ideology of this bizarre, I mean, you want to talk like circus show like look at the house hearing today i just saw excerpts of it but you know jim jordan kind of going in across the board but on fauci about like you know haven't people's liberties and freedoms been taken i mean come on so i i think Lori's correct david to your question why is this happening it's just basic biology i mean this isn't a sentient creature who like wants to hurt our feelings. This is just a virus, and this is what they do. And they have to continue. They're continuously mutating. Some of those mutations become consequential, and we, we see things like antigenic um, shifts and drifts, and that's just a scientific way of saying that... We are incredibly smart with science and things like vaccines, but at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that we're up against, you know, viruses who have nothing else but their ability to reproduce and try to survive. And when you're up against survival, you can pretty much, you know, look at other viruses and where we've been. Uh, So Lori's right. I will give you... um, I'll say this so that I can have some optimism because we always come here and talk about just, I, I, I just want to kind of impress upon everybody how amazing these vaccines are. And I'm not just saying that to be trivial, we're now seeing more and more and more evidence about their ability to not only stave off infection and death, but kind of generating what we call T cells, which can be a little bit of like the memory of immunity, longer term. Uh, we just heard the Pfizer CEO uh, kind of came on and, and announced that it's likely we'll need a third kind of booster shot uh, anywhere from six to 12 months after the first two doses of the vaccine. And that paints the picture. I think Lori and I both talked about how we don't feel like this is one and done in America, just the skies open up and the birds are singing, but that this becomes a part of our kind of life. And that in the big picture of like centuries, this isn't as bad as it could have gotten possibly because of science, but Lori's, I look at Brazil, Lori, I looked at those India trends, Germany that you rightfully mentioned, and then I'm also seeing their degrees of botched vaccine rollouts or or not having, I mean, if you're if you're in Brazil, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and because you have, think about this, David, Bolsonaro, I mean, Lori's right, she started with, we have an administration, we do. I want to just underscore that point If Donald Trump were still in office, I have no faith that we wouldn't be talking about almost a million deaths. I mean, I'm not trying to say that to be, you know, shock and awe, but that's we were very close to what Brazil has with a crazy person and a despot who now is saying things like the vaccines are okay. Maybe maybe people should get them. So yeah, David. But I'll end on a positive note. We are vaccinating. People are taking it. We're still seeing, um, we're now starting to get to that inflection point. We're gonna have a little bit more supply in pockets. I have open spots for vaccines pretty much all week. We're doing walk-ups. Anybody can walk up over the age of 16 and get vaccinated. That's a good thing, but there are a pocket of people, not just almost half the military. Um, We've got 32% of healthcare workers that haven't taken it, and it's largely the lower wage, mostly ethnic minority racial, uh, ethnic minorities that are not taking it for a lot of different reasons. So we have a, we have a ways to go.
1: Ryan, questions? Sure,
4: so I guess I wanted to <clears throat> focus in on the Johnson & Johnson um, suspension that just happened earlier this week. And uh, I guess the one question I have that would be just thought kind of important to focus on is the global implications of the Johnson & Johnson suspension not just what's happening inside the United States. So South Africa um, has suspended the use of Johnson & Johnson. Johnson Johnson, I guess, has suspended for itself the rollout in Europe. Um, Australia, I believe, has suspended Johnson & Johnson. And the piece of it that I can't wrap my head around is, in some sense, it's what Kavita was talking about in terms of assessment of risk.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: One would think that the risk would be different in each of these countries, like even in the United States, the fact that it's just these six cases out of nearly 7 million people. In each of these other countries, especially when we're talking about like frontline medical workers in South Africa that need Johnson & Johnson, you would think that the calculation of the risk with such a teeny tiny fraction of actual cases of the blood clots would produce a different policy outcome. Mm. Yet we're seeing in so many different contexts, the same decision to immediately suspend uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Is that make sense? I mean, when I, when I first heard the news, I was thinking, you know, does this make sense to suspend it for the U.S. context, but then to actually see it happening in so well, many think, different countries? I think there's yeah. a
3: couple of things to, 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 you know, disaggregate here. First of all, there is no regulatory agency that deals with pharmaceuticals that is superior to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The entire world follows the FDA's lead, including the European Medical Medicines agency, and even uh, the Chinese uh, medical leadership. Um, so if the FDA says, hmm, we're a little nervous here. Let's put a hold on this and study it more carefully, have various committees, CDC, et cetera, come look, the rest of the world goes, oh, gulp. Mm-hmm. The second part of this is it's not the first one. I mean, Johnson & Johnson is coming on the heels of this massive set mm. of endless controversies surrounding the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I I mean, I can't really think of a company that has handled something worse than the way the leadership of AstraZeneca has handled their vaccine. In fact, they just renamed it. I can't even remember what the name is. It starts with a V so that people will stop thinking of it as the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, And they've they've literally made every mistake that would be in a PR hand. And the result is, Ongoing scandal about, you know, since that's the number one vaccine that's been donated to COVAX, which is the big international effort to create equity by um, supplying vaccine either free or highly subsidized lowered cost to developing and middle income countries around the world. Um, so here's where we are. The, the three vaccines that are showing most difficulty in terms of potential side effects are all what are called adenovirus vector vaccines, meaning that the basic design of the vaccine is that you're pitching genetic material related to specifically the COVID virus onto what supposedly is a harmless virus, an adenovirus. That is, in humans, the only thing we really usually get from adenovirus is mild colds, what we think of as a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make it even Safer, they used adenoviruses that come from other primates, not human beings, so that um, they can't cause disease in our body. But there's something about this adenovirus vector formulation that seems to trigger a different kind of response in some people compared to what the mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, are eliciting. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is we have another set of vaccines all coming out of China, I believe one is Sinovac, um, that, are, that are showing worse and worse efficacy, down to the level that Chile had one of the high, it has the highest rate of successful vaccination of a Latin American population and ranks above the United States for percentage of population vaccinated. It was being held up as the great success story of Latin America, but they used the Chinese vaccine and now they're finding out, you know, if it's 50% effective, you know, that's probably even then an exaggeration. It's probably worse than that. And they have people that are going into their third round, their third booster and still not eliciting antibodies. So where we are on a global scale with all of this is that credibility gets undermined every time especially in poor countries, every time there's the perception that the good vaccines are for the rich countries mm-hmm. and the crap vaccines get dumped everywhere else. That's right. And internally, inside the United States, there's the same sensitivity. You know, oh, you're going to dump the Johnson & Johnson on us because we're on the Navajo Nation. But you in New York City get to have Moderna. Um, and we really are facing an uphill battle on dealing with all of this because there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, it is true that the vaccines that have filled the COVAX supply have been AstraZeneca, Sinopharm, the, Sino, the mm-hmm. Chinese one, um, the Russian Sputnik and so on. <laughs> and you know, we haven't rushed as an American population to say, we wanna share our largesse with the world. We're going to relinquish some of our Pfizer and some of our Moderna supplies to COVAX. <laughs> and so just today, um, Gordon Brown, the former exchequer of the UK Mm-hmm. together with i think it's 50 former heads of state plus um leaders of m- multiple multinational institutions have called on president biden to void the patents on moderna and pfizer oh, yeah, to allow yeah. the generic yeah. manufacture of those vaccines worldwide
2: that's not going to happen ryan i'll just add um I, i'm not sure if you were looking for opinions about yesterday's actions or lack of actions by the advisory committee at the cdc I think this was a mistake. I think the FDA sending up a signal, it was truly a safety signal. We could argue about whether it should have been a pause. Um, One other action that I've seen the agency do and would have advocated and said that was also very sound would have been uh, what we call kind of a dear clinician letter where an advisory warning goes out to every prescribing, practicing healthcare professional doctors on all the way through. And I personally, the most important part of discussing Johnson & Johnson in these six cases, by the way, it's actually, there were two cases before the authorization six cases after so and, and so it's a it's it's interesting to look at the data the most helpful was
3: a 25 year old 25 year old man man, male, man
2: i know that which is why no I'm, prior
3: history of any health issues at all
2: which laurie is why i'm nervous when people are like let's just you know women and i said there's no reason biologically to believe this is limited to women so but but ryan i think that the fda could have put out guidance to clinicians about things to look for if someone has been vaccinated in the last you know if someone presents with these symptoms and they have received a vaccine of any kind but including Johnson and Johnson in the last 3 weeks this is what you need to do that would have been much better than what we did which was a pause safety signals FDA pause kick it to the advisory committee of the CDC and this is which super then kicks it down the road And this is super inside baseball, but people are like, why did why did the CDC get their hands on CDC runs and ASIP runs the um, adverse events reporting system and they've been meeting every week about any adverse events unbeknownst to the public, but that's why it came from them. And what did they do they. In their deliberations, they said, we don't want to make a rush judgment. But by kicking the can down the road, Ryan, I think it's done more damage now. And I think the nail is in the coffin for the United States using Johnson & Johnson. And I frankly suspect AstraZeneca will not put in an EUA anytime soon in this country, because I'm sure regulators have said, guess what? This is going to be a very problematic emergency authorization. And I'm now increasingly worried that to Lori's top point, The United States FDA is considered the gold standard. There are very few things the United States is gold standard on. This is it. And other countries, I have friends in country in India and Africa who said, Why would we do something that's not good enough for the United States? And by doing that, they're going to cause more harm in their countries than good. Mm -hmm. And that's so I'm very upset about yesterday. I'm very upset.
3: I'm upset too. And I agree a thousand percent with you. Um, The one thing I would just add to that is you know, the hope with going to the Johnson & Johnson formulation is that it only requires normal refrigeration. Right. So when we're looking at whether it's, you know, remote part of uh, upstate uh, Arizona or um, central Mexico, or it's, you know, way in the middle of nowhere, Tanzania, Mm -hmm. we were looking for a vaccine that didn't require more rigorous Logistics than what is applied to normal child vaccination schedules. So, if you could transport measles vaccine and polio vaccine, you could transport a COVID vaccine. But Moderna and Pfizer both require far, far deeper refrigeration. And it's hard still, even now, for some localities across the United States to use up those supplies on the time schedule you know, that is considered the safe window of having them thaw Mm -hmm. before we're not sure whether they're still good and safe to use.
2: I had 500 doses going this Saturday into, we were going to do mobile clinic, but really backpacks in a car. And we were going to go to parts of Maryland where we know that there are people who tend to congregate or work mostly latin latino men who are largely undocumented but they kind of crowdsource saturday mornings to then go do yard work and we were going to hit up they're kind of usually in parking lots of like home depots and places like that we were going to go hit those places up saturday morning it would not be possible with the other vaccines and i'm not saying that that's like you know just we didn't have to do it this way i mean what could have happened yesterday could have been a clinician warning a clinician warning the equivalent of kind of like a black box on a pill and we could have been acutely aware and we might even have said if you have a female under a certain age i probably wouldn't advise you to get it but i could use it in in people who i have no other choice and who will likely go unvaccinated and that's exactly what's happening and and the,
3: so- and, the, and i do want to say there is a really important physician warning here, There is, which is don't use heparin. Right. So if you're, if you're a physician, and I mean, Kavita should really be saying this because she is a physician, I'm just pretending right now. But <laughs> if you were a physician and you saw a patient throwing blood clots, your first drug of choice would be heparin to thin the blood and to eliminate the possibility of a clot going to the brain or the heart. In which case, in either place, could be a lethal event. Um, And what's crucial about this particular type of blood clotting with thrombocytopenia and uh, just an array of very specific issues that these patients have experienced is that heparin would be uh, very dangerous for them to take. So, if there's one thing I wish they had done yesterday in this ACIP, session at the cdc and even before that that i wish the fda had done it would have been to say attention all physicians across america right if you have patient who's who's in these age groups and has had recent vaccination with this vaccine here are the correct procedures to follow you know don't do standard approaches etc it could be a lethal event right
1: so let me we have about five minutes left in this uh, in this discussion. Clearly, not enough time. Clearly, we're going to have to come back and revisit all of this. But but I want to get back to the point that we opened with, um, Laura. You were talking about how it's kind of a, a drag race in this country between you know the distribution of the vaccines uh, and the vaccine the and the and the virus itself mutating, um, and. You know, as you've described the rest of this, it actually seems that in some respects what's happening with the vaccines is we're losing ground because some of them are not usable. And every time something like that happens, the anti-vaccine, anti-COVID science response, the Jim Jordan response, jumps on it, says C. Mm -hmm. And when the states that are trying to do the right thing, end up with rising mm-hmm. numbers of cases. The states that are rejecting doing the right thing, say see doesn't matter whether we do it or they do it. and so the, the, the you know the, the the formula I look at it and I see what you're saying, and I see the Washington Post' lead story today is thirty eight states are up over last week, mm-hmm. um, and the numbers in Michigan and some of these other states are terrible. You know the question is. What do we do? Do we push the vaccine? Do we, you know, push what we've got? Is the only real answer, since these other vaccines are tainted, is to um, get rid of these patent protections and make these particular ones available someplace else? Uh, Should the government be more authoritative about, you know, I mean, one of you mentioned the Marines and that 40% of the Marines don't want it. And I'm like, What's going on here? It's the Marines, you know. Tell them to take it, you know. Te- you know, you you couldn't get into school without certain vaccinations once upon a time. You can't get into other countries without certain vaccinations. Why are we tiptoeing around this one? So the question again, five minutes, couple minutes for each one of you is: What's the prescription to get out of what seems like a downward spiral, Lori?
3: First. I mean. The, first, the first, first part of the prescription is to throw, flush your hubris down the toilet, mm-hmm. get some humility, recognize that we're in an evolutionary battle with this virus. The virus is new to our species. So, you know, five months ago when the first variants were popping up, a lot of the so-called experts out there did the classic shoulder shrug and said, "Ah, you know, the viruses are doing what viruses do, they mutate well there's mutation, and then there's evolution that is going towards an unknown but potentially extremely dangerous direction mm-hmm. This virus has not been in the human body before, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know we're in a we're in very early stages of cohabitation on planet Earth with this virus, and anybody who is flip or cavalier about what all these variants and the evolution of this virus means is not facing up to reality so I was pleased that the Pfizer executive warned that we may very soon need to have a third booster directed towards some of the variants maybe a fourth booster down the road I think what worries me is that you know the head of the fed went on 60 minutes and said hey you know what we're going to have an incredible economy we are you know cooking with bacon folks and it's all because the vaccines are here and the epidemic is coming to an end and all sort of normal business is gonna resume, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, the pressure is there to somehow make use of these vaccines in a way that allows the economy to surge forward. Um, And I'm just very worried that we're committing ourselves uh, to winning this Indianapolis 500 drag race with the variants and the vaccines um, without without having the appropriate level of, Humility and understanding that there are m- amazing pitfalls and dangers still laying before us, not the least of which is the denialists and the crackpots. Kavita, yeah, the
2: only the only thing I briefly, David, what I'd add is that. We have to come on. We have to walk and chew gum and spit it out at the same time. Like, vaccines today, we do need to have a better mechanism for allocation of vaccine distribution besides per capita at this stage. We clearly have excess capacity in some places. And then we have, you know, poor Gretchen Widmer who would probably use Sinovac if she could because she's just like desperate. Right. So, but, but a vaccine, we can't so vaccinate our way Biden,
1: out. Why is Jeff Zients saying go jump in a lake tour?
2: You know why? Because I can 100% I I have been on that side, not at this level of threats and this kind of issue. I have been on that side where Jeff is coming from, where it one little kind of one kind of thing pulls out and the house of cards falls. And in the form of many other governors who are like, what the F I've, I've also, you know, Cuomo all the way down, who have already asked, by the way, Widmer is much more public about it. What's happened behind the scenes is everybody is asking for something different and something more or something less. And then the other thing you have to remember is that Jeff Science has been told by his scientists a fact that vaccines today, even if you give her a billion of them, are not going to change the trajectory of what's happening. The numbers showing up today are from the actions that have gotten put into place over the last several weeks, which include basic mitigation measures. It includes the fact that in the thumb of Michigan, in Tuscola County and places like that, nobody's wearing a mask, nobody. And And they're going to the bars. And they're going to bars. So so this has a lot more to do with, when I say walk and chew gum, Yes, we need to be able to flex and surge vaccines in a different distribution mechanism. We should use the data we're getting to do something different. Yes, we need to change and reinforce mitigation measures. Yes, we probably need to also surge some therapeutics, get better testing so we can figure out who should get monoclonal antibodies when it's appropriate. But we just don't, to criticize the Biden administration fairly, we have all this data. We are still not making data-driven decisions. And that is why we're getting, You Know, kind of michigan's and new york's b1526 in manhattan and other issues but yeah so that's the prescription
1: well that's a a, a very daunting uh, report and uh you know we've we vowed to cover this on a regular basis i had no idea when we said we were going to do that, that we here we'd be a year later continuing to do it <laughs> uh it looks like we're going to be doing it for some time to come and so, hopefully, Laurie will will welcome you back soon. Uh, and hopefully, in the interim, you will stay safe out there in Brooklyn. Um, we're gonna we're gonna shift the focus here, so you can um, uh, you don't have to hang around for our discussion now about about Russia. Thank you, thank you, Laurie. Um, uh, I, I I would like to get Ryan's take, and then Kavita, if you've got a, a response to it, because. You know the the president talked about Russia today. Sanctions were imposed today, in on 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 Russians. Diplomats were expelled. It had to do with the solar winds case, but it also had to do with some of the um, election uh, uh, intervention uh, of the Russians. And the, there was a kind of a a bombshell in the middle of it all, which was the Treasury Department acknowledging that when Paul Manafort got campaign data. Um, and passed it on to Konstantin Klimnik. Klimnik passed it on to Russian intelligence. And Mueller, in the Mueller report, says he doesn't know where it's gone. I think they assumed that. Uh, There's a bit of a detective story to try to figure out who knew what when, because Mm -hmm. it's possible the intelligence community has known this all along. Um, But, Ryan, I'd just like to turn to you first. For your take on it, then maybe Kaviti, you can ask him a follow-up question before we go. On and what do you think the significance of all this is? So I, I agree. I think it is highly significant. It w- it was always the most
4: colludy part of the collusion um, understanding when the very campaign chairman uh, Paul Manafort shared quote unquote sensitive polling internal polling data with Kalimnik who, you know, the Mueller report also said had active ties to Russian intelligence, but then the bipartisan Senate intelligence report said that Kalimnik was a Russian intelligence officer. So that was always a big deal. But then it's not just the Mueller report, it's also the bipartisan Senate intelligence report a year later says they can't establish anything further. They do not have the information as to what Kalimnik might have done with that polling data. Um, So why did he have it? Was he just because he's, you know, some... A uh, guy who has been hanging around for Man- with Manafort for years, and maybe he's just doing something for Manafort with that information. You know, so it really did stop right there. And then indeed, today, it's just this one line in the Treasury statement about Kalimnik, and it says it point blank. It says, Dur- quote, during the 2016 US presidential election campaign, Kalimnik provided the Russian intelligence services with sensitive information on polling and campaign strategy. So it's this big missing link um, in the collusion uh, story. And then as you say, David, you know, one big question that gets raised here is, did they actually have the intelligence information before and it wasn't fully shared with the Senate, for example? Because it's not that long ago that the Senate issued their report in late 2020. On the other hand, maybe um, more intelligence information came streaming in after the Trump administration left because people felt safer to share information with the US intelligence community. It's difficult to know what the explanation is for it. Or another one might be a new team was in town, so they sifted through the information differently. Um, but uh, in terms of the historical understanding at a minimum that we have, uh, this was a key uh, missing link in the, in the
1: narrative. So um, Kavita, please feel free to ask him any follow-up question, including you know, on the biochemistry of mutating viruses, I'd love to hear <laughs> Ryan's answers on that, but, but wherever, wherever you want to take that.
2: <laughs> Actually, Ryan, just for my education, because I saw just as it was kind of unfolding, well, the White House put out a statement, I think in advance of the actual formal announcement and it, the sanctions targeted specific entities and officials to your point, but, um, and, and they expelled the diplomats can I ask a very, I would love for you to educate me, both of you, because both of you swim in this space. When was the last time we saw something of this magnitude or is this first ever? I mean, did we do this around Azerbaijan or any, has, have, we, have we ever kind of taken this degree of action?
4: So my sense is that, I mean, we've taken some degree of action, especially vis-a-vis the Russians for the invasion of Ukraine mm-hmm. and at the end of the Obama administration for the election interference in 2016. but. Um, And then, David, you know, I'd love to hear what you think about the effectiveness of these new sets of sanctions, because they've ratcheted it up from individuals to um, corporations and uh, groups, so -hmm. that that's one aspect of it. They're going after Russia's sovereign debt is another aspect of it. And then from the little I know, in a certain sense of how these sanctions might be different, they're also operating in a very different international economic environment where Russia may be more vulnerable now. Um, to this kind of raft of sanctions economically than they were previously with the COVID pandemic and uh, with oil prices not favoring them as much. But.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, you know, sanctions are common and and expelling diplomats fairly common. We've even shut down consulates with the Russians. Um, and uh, I think some things here were have been done better than in the past. Uh, the uh, uh, Clearly, Secretary Blinken, also Secretary Austin, were in Europe last week, they met with our allies. They've coordinated this with our allies. The, 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 the Poles, for example, you know, instituted a response, also similar response uh, to the Russians on this. The more multilateral we make this, the more effective sanctions and penalties mm-hmm. are. The more unilateral sanctions are, the less effective um, they are. The farther the sanctions are from Putin and Putin's closest friends. The the less effective they are, the closer they are to Putin and Putin's closest friends, uh, the more effective they are. Uh, you know, parenthetically, but a little side story. Um, uh, uh, during the war in the Balkans, um, the U.S. was trying everything to put pressure on Milosevic, hmm. uh, bombing campaigns. didn't work. And then, the, you know, this is the 90s, and then, and then the United States said, well let's bomb the factories of Milosevic's best friends. Mm. And so we went in and bombed the factories of Milosevic's best friends. And, you know, they were on the phone to Milosevic saying, stop whatever you're doing. You're ruining our lives. Mm. And, you know, that, 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 that kind of leverage is important here. The other thing that I would say is, you know, countries speak to each other in this kind of strange shadow language. Mm -hmm. It's there's a conversation going on between the United States and Russia. Now, Mm -hmm. there are a couple of questions I've got about that conversation. One question is, I heard Mike McFaul, our former ambassador to Russia on MSNBC shortly before we started here, saying this is an effort to put a punctuation mark on all the stuff that happened under Trump. These are things that happened back then. This administration wants to move on. Well, if that's the case, the Russians are going to be more or less relieved, right? If this administration is going to drill down, dig further, penalize more, that would have another consequence. So we have to see whether that's the case. And of course, Russia now has been massing troops on the Ukrainian border in a way that is ominous and threatening. And to the extent to which Russia responds to this message, about 2016 with something that's very much in the language of 2021 and 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 has negative consequences for Ukrainian sovereignty is a threat to Europe and is an escalation of the conversation that that could be you know a troubling development so we're going to have to see how well we maintain our our, our resolve how well we work with our uh, diplomatic partners and uh, uh, whether this is the end of the conversation or it's the beginning of a new phase of the conversation, and how the Russians respond to it. So I, you know, I, all those things will color, I think, that 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 outcome. Um, anyway, I wanted, to, I just had wanted to touch upon this because I, I, I do think it's a, a fairly significant deal. Um, uh, you know, it's actually bigger than that. You know, you Ryan who's a wordsmith you know because he's the co-editor of just security used the term legal term mm-hmm. that he learned at harvard law school colluding. he said this was very Colluding. Colludi. yeah it's really fucking colluding. <laughs> um you know and and you know i mean you know what what why does russian intelligence want granular detail about where trump thinks they're vulnerable In the Trump campaign, why you know it's you know this is you know in some ways, uh, I think Andrew Weissman said this is the missing link, and and one of the things that just hangs in the air for me is, oh, so that's it, (laughs) we're (laughs) we're proving it's colluding, and now we're turning the page. You know, I personally that makes my blood boil a little bit. Yep, and and just a
4: couple data points are. You know, this is happening at the same time in terms of turning the page that Biden is saying, "Oh, I'd love to meet with you, Putin, at some yeah. some location." And yeah, um, right. while we, yeah, and while we're filming the or, or uh, re- recording the podcast, uh, CNN is reporting that uh, President Biden, in his uh, statement today, his remarks uh, that were going on while we we're recording, didn't mention the words uh, Alex ne- um, Novak.
2: Oh, really? Uh, yep.
1: Yeah. Well, wow. you know, I, I in I, I don't want to say, you know, one way and take a side in it, but uh-huh. Mike McFall's point was that this is about prior issues, right. and it's not about current Biden issues, and they would consider Navalny a current issue mm-hmm. to be ad- addressed separately. Now, I don't know if that's a distinction they're making. Clearly, they knew the Navalny case was going to come up. Mm-hmm. And with Navalny's condition deteriorating, mm-hmm. uh, this this is not going to go away. So mm. pr- I don't I don't know if it was so wise to 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 try to cubbyhole these things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's it for us today. I you know unusually, I mean, we try to be on the news, and sometimes that's a little depressing. I found Kavita that your report with Lori was harrowing.
3: Yeah. But
2: (laughs) my public service announcement is that get vaccinated. We've got a time window where you can get on a plane and see people, hopefully, safely. I'm saying this for our own sanity, because I don't know what six months from now looks like. I don't think it looks exactly like it did a year ago. But are we in this kind of bizarre, kind of circular, you know, waiting for boosters and then doing this whole exercise of trying to get boosters and appointments all over again.
1: Maybe. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm feeling that the government needs to be a little more assertive. You know, it, you know, it's Jim Jordan's wrong. It's not about freedom uh, when you're trying to protect. People.
2: Oh, oh yeah. You're t- So yeah. I mean, we could have another podcast on mandates and I, I land on the side of, I think the military and healthcare professionals should have this vaccine mandated. If you want to continue to be in service and take care of people and all the things that I feel like I have an obligation to do, I think teachers and staff at ch- schools should have a mandate. I'm, I think I'm, if you're public
1: facing, I think right. if you're working in the food service, if, That's if you're right. working in healthcare, I think I'm, you're, I'm, you
2: I'm, you know, I'm with you. I'm with you.
1: Yeah. So you and I could be authoritarian.
2: <laughs> exactly but no surprise there
1: no no there's really there's really not anyway thank you kavita thank you ryan thanks to Lori. thanks to everybody for listening for more on what we're doing here go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, we'll see you next week in the meantime stay healthy everybody
0: bye-bye we hope you enjoyed this episode of deep state radio Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top expert policymakers and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed. Discounts to virtual events and deep state radio swag and access to the member only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting the DSR Listeners to words matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.